Hi, guys. Welcome back to Suspects. I'm Katie. And I'm Hannah. And this is a show where we don't just want to feed into your true crime obsession. But shed some light on stories and situations that don't get a ton of attention. And today, as always, we have two really wild stories to share with you guys. I'm really excited for today's stories, actually. <laughs> I'm, I'll tell you all about, all about mine when it's my turn. Um, yeah, I've got a wild story to tell you, for sure. If you guys listened last week, you know that our theme for this week was serial killers, and I feel like there's so many, I don't want to say great because obviously this is terrible, but so many interesting cases to choose from, it was hard to narrow down. I went through like four cases where I was like, I don't know which one I should do. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I know. I think it's just the psychology behind serial killers that's just so fascinating. Right, like you want to sit down like across from them and interview them almost, like what are you thinking right now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was talking to my mom last night and she was like, you should have done Ted Bundy. And I was like, I know, but I feel like that's the most talked about case. And if Hannah and I do that, like it's going to be an episode that we do together because there's just so much to it. Oh my gosh. We should totally do Bundy and do like his California murders and his Florida murders. Not California, Colorado. Right, right. Yeah. Colorado. It's okay. He might, he probably did some in California too. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. Um, so this week, guys, like I said, our theme is serial killers. Hannah and I both picked a case. I picked the case. Oh, hold on. I don't even have my notes up, you know. I'm slipping. Hold on one second. Mm-hmm. Now, now the intro wants to load after I've already winged it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this week, guys, I picked the case of Wayne Williams. Um, he was behind the Atlanta murders back in the 70s, um, late 70s, early 80s. And Hannah, who did you pick to do this week? I picked Ed Kemper. Oh, I love that one. If you don't recognize that name, he also is known as the co-ed killer. Yes, I love when they covered Ed Kemper on Mindhunter. He was like my favorite, not my favorite person on there, but the most interesting character on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's definitely a very... Oh, my gosh. I've never heard a story of someone like him. Twisted. <laughs> yeah. So last week we did John Bonet and Casey Anthony, um, and our theme was hometown murders. And I believe that I went first last week with John Bonet Ramsey, Hannah. Do you want to go ahead mm-hmm. and jump into Ed Kemper? Yeah, let's do this. Let's hear it. Um, okay, so just starting off, i got to say that I have a pretty strong stomach for a true crime. I've been a fan for, I don't know if fan is the right word, but I have been fascinated and intrigued by true crime for a really, really long time. And I've heard Ed Kemper's story like a bunch of different times, but this time when I was just prepping the notes for it, I just was extra disturbed and honestly a little bit nauseated. So I'm just going to preface this story with if you've never heard of Ed Kemper and his cases and his victims, it's extremely graphic. So ready, be <laughs> warned. Yeah, be warned. It's it's rough, um, but he's very very unique, and we'll get into that in just a second. I'm going to tell you all, all about his upbringing because his upbringing was, I really think, the number one 
factor in making a monster. So Ed was born um, in 1948, and he was a middle child of E.E. and Clarnell Kemper. And let me tell you, Clarnell, she is horrible. She's a terrible woman. Uh Um, Yes, his mother. So when his parents divorced, he lived with his mom and both of his sisters in Montana. So his mom, she was an alcoholic. And she was very verbally and emotionally abusive to him. I couldn't find anything about how he, how she treated her daughters, but I know that she treated Ed very, very poorly. So his bedroom was the basement of their home. Oh, my goodness. And the only door to the basement was a trap door that was under the dining room table. So the only way for him to get in and out of his room was for Clarnell to move the dining room table to either let him in or let him out. Oh, my gosh. That only... just gave me a Harry Potter flashback. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and the Dursleys were monsters, but even he had a doorknob. But <laughs> this poor kid, I mean, what if there was a fire or something? The poor kid is just stuck down there. But yeah. another thing is that the only light switch for his room was, like, the pull light switch in the middle. And she often wouldn't even let him get to the light switch before she shut the trap door. So the poor kid was terrified. I mean, every kid's terrified of the dark. Heck, I'm 23 years old and I'm terrified of the dark. I still sleep with the nightlight. (laughs) Yeah. He would, I mean, I sleep with the TV on. I'm not even (laughs) playing. But he would have to run to the light as fast as he could because Clarnell would just shut the door on him. Oh, my goodness basically say screw you but the reason she did it is because she feared that he would harm his sisters which Mm. at at that point in his life from what I can tell from all my research there was really no indication that he was violent or dangerous in any way she just maybe she had a bad history with men and that like influenced it I don't know but basically for some reason she was terrified that he was going to do something to attack his sisters which he would attack women in the future, but for now, he's just a little kid. Right. She also just, she blamed him for everything. She was super, super critical of him. Um, Like, she blamed him for her her divorces, like, all this stuff. Just everything that went wrong seemed to be Ed's fault. And when you're a kid, I mean, for your parents to put all the blame for their lives on you, like, that's that's got to be horrible. That's just, that's just messed up. Okay. But so that's his mom. As you can tell, or not, you can tell, but as you can imagine, this kid's life started out pretty dark. So then of course, when he starts to like act in really odd and really bizarre ways, it's not that shocking. Um, So when he was young, he would fantasize about killing his mom. Okay, and we know this. I'll tell you all how we know this later on. But <laughs> we know that when he was really young, he fantasized about killing his mom, and he would, like, cut the heads off of his sister's dolls when oh he would goodness. have his fantasies. Yeah. And he and his sisters would play a game that they called Gas Chamber, where he would have them lead him to a chair, and he would writhe around until he quote died 
um, what? <laughs> yeah. And that was like air quotes, not quote, but yeah. Um, and then when he was 10, he started killing family cats. When he was 10, he killed his first one. He buried it alive. And then at 13, he slaughtered one with a knife. Oh, and at that mm-hmm. point, yeah, at that point, he was sent to live with his father. And then his dad, we don't know a ton about the dude, but I imagine he probably wasn't the greatest because he quickly sent him back to his mom, who immediately sent him to live with his grandparents. And if oh you guys goodness. are familiar with, yeah, if you guys are familiar with this case, you know where it's about to go. Um, but yeah, he's, I mean, raised in a dark basement by himself, starts doing weird stuff, gets passed all around. This poor, this poor kid, I mean, he grows up to be a monster, but man, his childhood is rough. Yeah, this poor kid feels so unwanted. Oh, yeah. Like, I just wonder what kind of sex, I mean, you can see what kind of psychological damage it created in him. But, right. Um, so, Ed Kemper lived, uh, was living with his grandparents and he absolutely hated it. He had a fascination with guns, um, which I mean, he lived kind of like in the, the farming type areas, which I feel like guns are a pretty normal hobby for when you're like a farmer rancher type person. Um, but his went to like another level, um, a level like to the point where it was concerning to his grandparents. Um, and he started, like, killing several birds and other small animals. And it wasn't, like, hunting for sport kind of thing. It was just, like, he would just mow down some animals. Oh, my so, goodness. He just wanted to kill something. Yeah. Which, I mean, killing animals is, you know, one of the signs in children. So. Yes. If your kids are peeing in the bed, killing animals, and I can't remember what the third one is. You might want to watch your back. Um, but then, okay, everything just came to a head on August 27th when Ed was 15. He shot his grandma in the kitchen after an argument and then waited for his grandpa to get home and shot him by his car. Then he hid, yeah, then he hid the body. Um, but what's both, crazy, both of their bodies? He, he hid his grandpa's body. I don't know why he hid one and not the other, but he immediately called his mom who told him to call the police. And he did like this guy kills his grandparents and then immediately calls his mom and confesses. Oh my goodness. Which is just the craziest thing about one of the craziest things about him. Um, But he later admitted that he shot his grandma to see what it felt like and his grandpa so that he wouldn't have to find out his wife was murdered. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. To see what it felt like. Okay. All right, buddy. Yeah. I just, I have to wonder if he was maybe, like, practicing killing Clarnell. Because, I mean, he used to fantasize about killing his mom. I don't know. I can't pretend to understand this guy's head. I'm not yeah, smart I mean, enough for that. Definitely a possibility. It surprises me that she's the first person he calls afterwards. <laughs> yeah, that's also really weird. He has Mom, this I like weird. You. Yeah, he has this weird like 
weird authority complex with his mom. It's it's just weird, and it gets weirder. Just wait. So um, after that, because I mean, he turned himself in, and then he was handed over to the California Youth Authority, who tested him and found that he had a very high IQ, but suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Um, which I mean, this is also um, the early '60s, so. Maybe it would be a different um, diagnosis now. We don't know. But that's what he was diagnosed with back then. Um, And he was sent to Atascadero State Hospital, which is a maximum security mental mental, um, hospital, mental facility um, for, like, specifically young adults to adults people. Mm. So, okay. This is this is one part that just baffles me. I don't even know what so, you're laughing at, but you made me laugh. <laughs> so when Ed is 15, kills his grandparents, gets sent to this maximum security facility for mentally ill people or people suffering from mental illness, and then not even seven full years later, it's less than seven years. It's like six years and some months. He is released from that maximum security hospital oh, for mentally oh. ill people. He learned his lesson. I don't even know if learned his lesson is the right word because I don't even know if he knew or understood that what he did was wrong. A hundred percent not. I was totally being sarcastic. That's crazy. Not even seven years after he murdered both of his grandparents. Yeah, and I'm just thinking, what the heck? Like, I mean, serving time for his crimes aside, he, I don't see how he could possibly be considered safe to reenter society. Like, he's, to me... I would deem him dangerous to himself and others. Yeah. And I would probably never release that kid back into the real world. I completely for, agree. For his protection his and everyone else's. Yeah. Hey, if he'll kill his grandparents, who else? Like, anybody. Yeah. But basically, the doctors, from what I can tell, maybe it was a little bit different, but, I mean, it is the 60s, and they're, when it came to mental health in the 60s, we all know it wasn't all there. <laughs> um, but what they basically did was, okay, don't go live with your mom, but get out. Oh, my goodness. And guess where he goes? Right to his mom's house in Santa oh. Cruz. Yeah. So she moved to Santa Cruz, California, right after her third divorce. Uh, where she got a job at the University of California. Uh, so Kimber went out there, and he was living with her. He went to community college while he was there, and he worked a bunch of odd jobs. But then two years later, he got a job with the Department of Transportation, which was a pretty big deal for Ed, because Ed, big shocker here, guys, he tried to be a state trooper. But he wasn't, he, yeah, he had a thing about wanting to be a cop and wanting to be, um, like a, some sort of officer, law enforcement. 
but he wasn't um, allowed to because his nickname was Big Ed. This guy was six foot nine and 300 pounds. Oh, whoa, that's a giant. <laughs> that's like NFL sizes there, dude. Like, Homeboy was massive. I mean, to put this in perspective, Shaq is seven feet, and then there's three inches shorter Ed Kemper. Ooh. No, who is thank a you. murderer. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nar. Nar, thank you. But so he tried to be a state trooper, couldn't be one, got a job with Department of Transportation. Um, but listen to this. Okay, this guy started hanging out with Santa Cruz police officers. He had a car that looked like a highway patrol car. And according to Whoever Fights Monsters, which is a book written by Robert K. Ressler and Tom Sackman, one officer gave him a training school badge and handcuffs, and another let him borrow a gun. Borrow a gun. Are you? (sighs) What? Yeah, I don't even know. I couldn't find anything about why, but I'm just thinking, if you're a police officer, why would you ever let anyone borrow your gun for any reason? I mean, not only that, but my big question is, is when he got out of this mental facility, did this just, like, fall off of his record, or was it still something that these police officers obviously could have seen by looking at his record? See, I don't even know, because, I mean, it happened when he was a juvenile, so I imagine those records are sealed. But, I mean, I, I, I don't know because, I mean, the judicial system has changed so much as, in regards to, like, privacy. Yeah. So maybe it was just out there and they just assumed that since he had been in this um, mental hospital, maybe he was rehabilitated and he was fine. I don't – I really don't know. I don't know if they had the, like, wherewithal to even check. Like, I just think – I mean, he just – if you've seen Mindhunter or if you've seen actual interviews with this guy, he's just a personable character. He's almost like a like a Ted Bundy. I mean not not quite like Ted, because Ted was just this weird like charismatic dude. But Ed, something about him I don't know. Everything you say, you just everything he says, you just kind of believe it. Am I explaining him right, Katie? Do you get that same impression from him from like Mindhunter and like video interviews with this guy? Yeah, I definitely do. He almost reminds me. The best way to describe him would be like when you guys were in high school. If you ever had like kind of that nerdy like gamer, like really nice kid that was like always in your class. Almost the kind of vibe that he gives me. Like he wants to be your friend. Like he just wants friends. He wants to talk. He wants yeah. to give you information and hear stuff. Yeah, he's a really smart, but like also kind of awkward. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that's just to him. So I imagine that these cops are probably just like, okay, this guy's a little awkward, but like, I mean, he's chill. Let's just hang out. Whatever. Um. But then, later that year, after he tried to be a 
um, state trooper and right after he got his Department of Transportation job, he was out on his motorcycle and he was hit by a car and it was pretty severe. Um, he wasn't able to work anymore and he got a $15,000 settlement. Ooh. So his inability to work meant that his mind was able to wander to other possibilities of activities to occupy his time. So, (laughs) you could only imagine. So, Ed Kemper used his $15,000 to purchase a new car, a gun, a knife, and handcuffs. Oh, my goodness. Which sounds to me like one of Israel T's little kill kits, if you've ever heard of his story. Yes. He's sick, too. Mm, He's twisted. But what Ed would do is he started, because Ed really, he always wanted to impress women. And his mom always told him that girls would never like him because he's freakishly big. Which, I mean, it's true. He's a very large man. But I don't think it was right for her to just be like, no woman would ever want you. You're too tall. What the heck is that? Yeah, 100% not. Maybe somebody wants that to feel protected and safe. Yeah, I know plenty of girls who like tall men. <laughs> well, I'm one of them. Um, <laughs> but so, like, because of that, Ed was never super comfortable around women. But, I mean, he's an adult male at this point, and, like, he wants the companionship of a woman. He wants to have sex with a woman. So he starts to pick up these hitchhiking women to practice talking to females. And the first several girls he picks up, like, he just tries to have conversation, but he just is so uncomfortable that he gets so nervous and he just, like, something about their vulnerability just was, like, alluring to them. So every time he picked up a woman, it just kind of escalated (sighs) until he picked up Mary Ann Pesci. I, I might pronounce that wrong. I've heard it pronounced a couple different ways. And Anita Luchessa. There are two girls he picked up that he took to the woods with the intention of raping them, but he panicked and he stabbed and choked them instead. Oh. Um, yeah. They didn't, have a, they didn't have a picnic in the woods? No, he, <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he, he killed them. It was pretty bad. Um, and the, What's really sad is the girl's parents reported them missing, and it wasn't until a hiker found, um, I believe it was Marianne's skull in the woods, that the girls were discovered. So it took a really long time for them to find those two girls. And then later that year, Kemper picked up a 15-year-old girl. Mm. Um, her, her name is Aiko Koo. And she was hitchhiking um, rather than waiting for the bus to take her dance class. And she had the same fate. Like, he intended to rape her, but he choked and stabbed her, too. So he'd be considered Um, an an unorganized killer. Yeah. Um, And then what was really sad is he... um, all of his victims, he would decapitate and, like, rape their dead bodies. 
So oh my we, yeah, um, it's it's really bad. Um, oh gosh, he's yeah, it's really really horrifying. Um, then in January of 1973, so he killed Ico in September, and then 1973 of January or January 1973, he acted a lot um, on his impulses. He picked up Cindy Shaw and he shot and killed her while his mom was out of the house. Um, and then he went to her home and hid her body in his room. So like he hit- went to her, went to her house and then also went to his house and hid her in his room. I don't know why it was significant that he went to her house, but either way, he hid her. In the court, in his room, and then he dismembered her and threw her parts into the ocean. Oh, my goodness. He did that all in his room. Yeah, but he saved her head and buried it in his mom's backyard, which he did with um, a couple other women's heads. And what's really sick is that he said he buried the heads in his mom's backyard facing up so that they would always be looking up to his mom. Yeah. Yeah. Then a month later in February, so he's just escalating at this point. Like it's just getting more and more frequent. He used a campus sticker that his mom had given him to do a double murder. He drove to the university and he picked up Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu. And after picking them up, he shot the two young women and drove past the security gates with the two dead women in his car. So he shot them, like, in the parking lot before he even left? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And after the murders, he decapitated both of them um, and dismembered them and removed bullets from their heads and disposed of their bodies in many different areas Um, and then hitchhikers discovered their remains a month later Uh, I feel like I feel like with killers I mean obviously like all people serial killers especially but all people who have killed somebody and been able to live with that are sick you know but I feel like to be able to dismember somebody like that's just a whole nother level of like and twisted like you you're cutting them up like what yeah yeah and and then just raping the bodies and the heads after it's just a whole other level of twisted Mm. it's just sickening but at the time that he was on his killing spree there were other two there were two other active serial killers at the time, uh, John Lomi Fraser and Herbert Mullins. And they were like also committing crimes in Santa Cruz. So they, at the time, Santa Cruz is known as the murder capital of the world. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a really bad time for Santa Cruz in the late sixties, early seventies. So then, all right, this is where the story comes to a climax. So in April of 1973, uh, he committed his last two murders. On Good Friday, 
he went to his mom's home where they had an argument and Kemper attacked his mom after she went to sleep and he hit her in the head with a hammer and cut her throat with a knife, decapitated her, raped her head, cut off her hands, and then he also removed her larynx and put it down the garbage disposal. Mm. And the only reason they figured that out was because when they were reviewing her remains, her larynx was missing, and he was like, yeah, I just put it in the garbage disposal because he was sick of hearing her talk. Like, he was, mm. he was annoyed that she always degraded him, so she he wanted to dispose of her ability to talk, even though he had already killed her, which effectively would do the same thing. I don't... Yeah. Anyway, uh, I'm getting a little nauseous. <laughs> no, I um, understand. Yeah. And then after he hit his mom's body parts, he called his mom's friend... Sally Hallett and invited her to the house where he strangled her and hid her body in a closet and then raped her body. So he just called her over to have somebody else to kill. Yeah. Um, But then the next day, so I'm thinking the day before Easter on Saturday, he made a call to the Santa Cruz police after driving to Pueblo, Colorado, um, which, do you know where that is in Colorado? I do. It's not that far from me. It's only a couple hours. <laughs> That's creepy. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, so he drove up there and then made a call to the Santa Cruz police to confess his crime. And at first, they, like, literally, they did not believe him. They were just like, whatever, like, you're just screwing around, whatever. But he was like, no, for real, like, this is me. Um. Like, he had to convince them that he did it because the police did not believe that their friend was a killer. Mm. Yeah. So, after all those interrogations, um, he was, you know, the police believed him, and then he was charged with eight counts of first-degree murder, and he went on trial for his crimes in October of 1973, which is really fast for a murder trial, Yeah. But I guess after all of his confessions and evidence that I'm sure he presented himself, um, it was probably not difficult to build a case, but he's found guilty of all of his charges in early November. So the trial didn't last long. When the judge asked what he thought his punishment should be, this guy suggested that he should be tortured to death. Oh my goodness. What a freak. Yeah. So instead, the judge gave him eight consecutive um, life sentences, and he's serving his time now at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville. He's still alive? Yeah. What? (laughs) Homie's still alive, at least according to biography. Whoa. Yep. That's I know. I, and then, so what's, what's really crazy about this guy and how we know all of the things about his childhood, which, I mean, I'm sure they found out some of it, but he, this guy disclosed everything. Like, he described, he gave all of the dirty details. He described every sick desire in his head. 
he even talked about a victim that like almost escaped and like exact details of how it happened, how he um, actually ended up getting her, like everything. He disclosed every single detail. It was like he was able to detach himself from himself and just like tell it like what happened. Not quite in the same way Ted Bundy did because Ted kind of, he was like, well, you know, this is probably what the actual killer was thinking. And then it was right. exactly what went down. Um, but Ed was totally like, yeah, I thought this and then I did it and then I did it. And I was just like, when I was watching the interviews, because there's actual video interviews with this guy, it's really disturbing. If you have a strong stomach, go for it. But I don't <laughs> super recommend watching those because it made, it made me sick. But, I mean, he literally would just sit down with the police or whoever, honestly, whoever's asking him. The depiction of him in Mindhunter is 100% spot on because he would just sit down and just talk about all of his sexual arousal towards killing and all of this stuff. And it was just, he just opened up to every bit, every bit of it. Mm. And doesn't seem to show much remorse, if any. I can't, I can't believe he's still alive. Like, I'm still stuck on that. He's still alive. What? I know. Homeboy's like 80-something years old by now. Oh, my goodness. I just looked up um, how far that place in Colorado is for me, and it's less than two hours away from me. Oh, wow. He's, he's 72. 72? 72 and still kicking. Guys. So wild. Like, I can't believe that. When you hear these stories and you hear that they happened back in the 60s, it's almost like you expect, like, these people to, like, not be alive anymore. And then you hear that they are, and you're like, what? <laughs> they yeah. Know. Yeah, it's just, it's crazy to me that he wasn't put to death for his crimes. I mean, most of them have been. Like, Ted was executed for his crimes, and... A lot of other serial killers have been executed for their crimes. I just, I cannot believe Ed Kemper is still alive. Me neither. And you know what? I think he, when you said earlier that he killed his grandparents or that you maybe think that maybe he was thinking his killing his grandparents to, like, practice on his mom, that makes perfect mm-hmm. sense. And the same with all the girls that he picked up because he saved his mom for last and then called the police and turned himself in. Yeah. So it's like that's what he was building up to the whole time. Yeah. I mean, he definitely, I think he probably planned to kill his mom his entire life. Oh, yeah, for sure. He just had to I mean, he right. fantasized about it when he was a little kid. Oh, my goodness. That, that is a wild story. You know, I've heard that story, obviously, a lot. But I've, some of the details you included, I didn't know. So I, I like to hear it because different people do it different ways and include different details. And that was really good, Hannah. <laughs> Well, yeah, it just, it really disturbed me that he would rape the heads and bodies of his victims after killing them. Yeah, like, they're already dead, and now you're going to do that, and then you're going to dismember them. So, like, every murder had, like, three or four steps to it. Yeah, I think he, I honestly think he feared women and, like, probably still wanted to have, like, a sexual experience, so he thought that killing them would eliminate like his reasons for being afraid of them. I don't know. Like that's the only reason I could possibly think of 
I really think he was afraid of women. Yeah, afraid of them and afraid of being rejected because that's what his mom told him was going to happen to him his whole life, and that's what she provided him with his entire life. Yeah. Wow, that was crazy. That's definitely one of my favorite cases to hear about. In, like, the most twisted way possible. Right, right. In the most, like, I'm not condoning it. Like, it's obviously terrible, but it's interesting from a psychological standpoint for sure. Yeah, I mean, his mind, like, I've, I mean, I've never heard of another killer that was just that upfront about what he had done. Right, like, and or like, a serial killer that calls and says, hey, like, I I murdered them, you better come get me, and they're like, no, and he's like, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, like, he convinced them. Most people, right. like, if you call and confess, and they're like, nah, I feel like most people that were confessing, they'd just be like, yeah, you're right, I'm just playing, I'm going to go live my life. Right. Especially most, before DNA evidence was a thing. Most people get coerced into confessions. He's willingly giving you one, and you're like, nah, bruh, stop playing. <laughs> everything everything about Ed Kemper is just baffling to me. I agree completely. I'm still, he's, he's still alive. I don't know, Ed. I don't know, Ed. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> I'll go I'm ready ahead. to hear about your case because I've never actually heard this case. Really? You only saw it? It was on Mindhunter, right? Maybe. Okay. Maybe I'm just bad with names. I could be, I could just be bad with names. Maybe when we get in, I'll recognize it. But based maybe. on the name, it doesn't ring any bells just yet. I got you. Well, you've, you've probably heard it before, but I'll give you all the dirty deeds. <laughs> Thanks, dog. No problem. Let me plug my microphone, my earphone back in. It's falling out of my ear. Okay, so guys, I picked Wayne Williams. Like I said earlier, he was actually behind the Atlanta murders. And if you haven't heard about those, I'm going to tell you, but definitely look into it. There's lots of documentaries on it. It was in Mindhunter. I do believe it was. If I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Um, But it was on Mindhunter, and that's where it really caught my attention because I had never heard this before then, and it really intrigued me. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into it. I'm kind of just going to tell you about the murders in general that happened up front because the police actually had no idea who was doing these for the longest time. Um, Keep in mind, this is back in the late 70s, early 80s. So this is when the police, um, well, really the FBI, they were studying sequence killers, which is killers that committed crimes in a sequence. And they later changed the term to serial killers. And this is around the time frame that they were starting to do so. And when they did that, they actually interviewed Ed Kemper, who Hannah just did a case on. So that's a fun fact for you. So the Atlanta murders of 1979 and 1981 were a series of murders that were committed in Atlanta, Georgia, between July of 1979 and May of 1981. Over the two-year period, at least 29 children, adolescents, and adults were killed. In the middle of 1979, Edward Hope. Smith and Alfred Evans, both 14, disappeared four days apart. Their bodies were found on July 28th in a wooded area, Smith with a 22 caliber gunshot wound in his upper back. They were believed to be the first victims of the Atlanta child killer. On September 4th, the next victim, 14-year-old Milton Harvey, disappeared while he was on an errand to the bank for his mother. He was riding a yellow bike, which was found a week later, in a remote area of Atlanta. 
his body was not recovered until November of that year. Hmm. On, I know. On October 21st, nine-year-old, and I might say this wrong, guys, and I'm so, so sorry, um, Yusuf Bell went to a store to buy things for a neighbor. A witness said that she saw Yusuf near the intersection by the grocery store, getting into a blue car before he disappeared. His body was found two weeks later on November 8th in an abandoned elementary, three weeks later, I'm sorry. His body was found three weeks later on November 8th in an abandoned elementary school by a school janitor who was looking for a place to go to the bathroom. Bell's body was found clothed in the brown cutoff shorts that he was last seen wearing, though they had piece, a piece of masking tape stuck to them. He had been hit over the head twice, and the cause of death was strangulation. Police did not immediately link his disappearance to the previous killing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, which kind of surprises me that they didn't link them right away, but I guess it makes sense because the MOs were different. Yeah. On March 4th, 1980, the first female victim, 12-year-old Angel Lanier, disappeared. She left her house around 4 p.m. She was wearing a denim outfit, and she was last seen at a friend's house watching the TV show Sanford and Sons. Angel's body was found six days later in a wooded vacant lot wearing the same clothes in which she had left. She was wearing the same clothes in which she had on when she left home the previous week. I don't know why I said that like that. <laughs> a pair of white panties a pair of white panties that did not belong to Angel were stuffed in her mouth and her hands were bound with an electrical cord. The cause of death was strangulation. On March 11th, one week after Lanier's disappearance, 11-year-old Jeffrey Mathis disappeared while he was running errands for his mother. He was wearing gray jogging pants, brown shoes, and a white and green shirt. Months later, a girl said she saw him get into a blue car with a light-skinned man and a dark-skinned man. The body of Jeffrey Mathis was found in a patch of woodland 11 months after he disappeared. By the time his body was found, it was not possible to identify a cause of death. On May 18th, 14-year-old Eric Middlebrooks disappeared. He was last seen answering the phone at home and then leaving in a hurry on his bicycle, taking with him a hammer to repair the bicycle. His body was found the following day next to his bicycle in the rear garage of an Atlanta bar. His pockets were turned inside out. His chest and arms had slight stab wounds, and the cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma to his head. A few weeks before he had disappeared, Middle Brooks had testified against three juveniles in a robbery case. So because of that, they didn't know if this was related to that or if it was related to the Atlanta child killer. Hmm. On June 9th, 12-year-old Christopher Richardson went missing on his way to a local pool. He was last seen walking towards a recreation center in Midway Park. He was wearing blue shorts, a light blue shirt, and blue tennis shoes. His body was not found until the following January, and he was clothed in unfamiliar swim trucks, and he was along the body of another victim, Earl Terrell. The cause of Richardson's death was not determined. On June 22nd, seven-year-old Latonya Wilson disappeared from her parents' apartment. According to a witness, she appeared to have been abducted by two men, one of whom was seen climbing into the apartment window and then holding Wilson in his arms as he spoke to the other man in the parking lot. On October 18th, Wilson's body was found in a fenced-in area at the end of Rabina Street in Atlanta. 
by then the Wait. body had been. He was seen holding her in his arms in the parking lot? Right. So supposedly there's two men. There's one in the parking lot, and there's one that climbed up to the apartment window and took the little girl out. Lovely. Right. Sorry. No, no, you're fine. <laughs> I just want to um, make sure I heard that right. Yeah, at any time. Seriously, I'd rather you hear it right than think I said something else. <laughs> by then... By the time her body was found, um, no cause of death could be established because she was already a skeleton. The next day, June 23rd, 10-year-old Aaron Witch disappeared after having been seen after witnesses say they saw him at a local grocery store getting into a blue Chevy with either one or two black men. A female witness says she saw Witch being led from Tanner's Corner Grocery by a six-foot-tall. 180-pound black male, approximately 30 years old, with a mustache and a goatee. The witness's description of the car matched the description of a similar car implicated in the earlier Jeffrey Mathis disappearance. At 6 p.m., 6 p.m. that day um, is when Aaron Witch was last seen. The following day, his body was found under a bridge. The official cause of death um, was, a, was asphyxiation from a broken neck suffered in a fall. In July of 1980, two more children, Anthony Carter and Earl Terrell, were murdered. Um, Earl Terrell is the one that I said was found next to the little boy laying next okay. to the water. So between August and November of 1980, five more killings took place. All the victims were African-American children between the ages of 7 and 14, um, and most were killed by strangulation. The murders continue into 1981. The first known victim in the new year was Luby Jeter, who disappeared on January 3rd. His body was found on February 5th. Jeter's friend, Terry Pugh, went missing in January. An anonymous caller told the police where to find Pugh's body. Terry lived in the same apartment as Edward Smith, who was killed back in 1979. Hmm. In February and March of 1981, six more bodies were discovered, believed to be linked to the previous homicide. Among the dead was the body of Eddie Duncan, the first adult victim. So all of these have been little boys and little girls, basically, but a majority of them have been little boys, and this is their first adult. Wow. In April, 20-year-old Larry Rogers, 20-year-old, 20-year-old Larry Rogers, 28-year-old John Porter, and 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne were murdered. Porter and Payne were ex-convicts and had just recently been released from Arendelle State Prison after serving time for a robbery. On May 12, 1981, FBI agents found the body of 17-year-old William Barrett on a curb in a wooden area near his home. A witness, 32-year-old Harold Wood, a custodian from Southwest High School. Um, he had run out of gas about a mile from the scene. Wood described a black man standing over and observing the location where the body was found before driving away in a white over blue Cadillac. Um, that made me so sick when I read that. That is 100% one of the creepiest things I've ever heard. I know, standing over and observing. Like, are you serious? 
No, thank so was, you. Whew, I don't know. Um, so during the end of May, during the end of May 1981, the last reported victim was added to the list. 27-year-old Nathaniel Cater. He was last seen by a gardener, um, Robert I. Henry, at the entrance of a theater in Atlanta. And listen to this. Reportedly holding hands with a guy named Wayne Williams. His body was discovered just hours later. Yeah. (laughs) Holding hands, going to a theater. Wow. Investigator Chet Detlinger created a map of the victim's location. Despite the difference in ages, the victims fell within the same geographic perimeters. They were connected to Memorial Drive and 11 major streets in the area. So during the murders, more than 100 agents were working on the investigation. The city of Atlanta imposed curfews, and parents in the city removed their children from school and did not let them play outside at all which I don't blame you as a parent. You are not going inside. Your outside is now inside your bedroom. Heck no. My kids would not be outside. Right. We're locking the windows. We're putting bars over the windows. He is not getting in. I'd be sitting in my kid's room all night, wide awake, with a rifle fully loaded pointed out the window. Heck no. Literally. Me too. I'd be sitting in the rocking chair just rocking back and forth. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Waiting for him. Come on. Come on, lady boy. My kid would be like, Mom, I'm trying to sleep. And I'd be like, you can go to sleep. I'm going to stay awake. Right. And they hear you cocking your gun in the corner. <laughs> go to sleep, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> hear one pop off and they'll be like, Mom, what the heck? I'll be like, I saw the leaves move. Go back to sleep. It was nothing. I'm practicing, Jenny. <laughs> For real. <laughs> trying to keep you safe. Right. <laughs> so as the media coverage of the killings intensified, the FBI predicted that the killer might dump the next victim into a body of water to conceal any evidence from the murder. Police staked out nearly a dozen area bridges. And I think this is the part was on Mindhunter where they were taking out bridges. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Okay, yeah, perfect. now that you're telling the case, I'm, like, totally getting Mindhunter flashbacks. Right, flashbacks. Yeah, I get you. That's what I was doing the whole time you were talking about Ed Kemper. I was just thinking about this giant asking them for food and cigarettes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to have to rewatch after this. Me too. I told my mom last night to watch that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. Right. So during a stakeout on May 22nd, 1981, detectives get their first major break when an officer heard a splash beneath the bridge. Another officer saw a white 1970 Chevrolet station wagon turn around and drive back across the bridge. Two police cars later stopped the suspect's station wagon about half a mile from the bridge. The driver was 23-year-old Wayne Williams, a supposed music promoter and a freelance photographer. The Chevrolet wagon belonged to his parents. Um, And side note here, I'm not going to tell you guys too much about Wayne Williams because I don't want to glorify him in any way at all, but I'm going to give you some quick facts about him so you know who he is as an overall person. So like I mentioned, he was 23. He was raised um, in the Dixie Hills of the southwest Atlanta, Georgia. His parents were actually both school teachers, which is super interesting. Um, I feel like if you have parents that are teachers, like, I don't know. I don't know. You know what I mean. I used to be a teacher, <laughs> like a preschool teacher. So, um, he, Yeah, it is creepy. 
So when Wayne graduated from high school, he got really into radio and journalism. He constructed his own radio station and actually began speaking on different radio stations where he befriended a number of the announcing crew, and he began dabbling in the pop music producer and manager area. Nice. So during questioning, Williams said that he was on his way to audition a woman, Cheryl Johnson, as a singer. Williams claimed she lived in the nearby town. Um, Williams claimed she lived in the nearby town. Police did not find any record of her or the appointment. And keep in mind that when they thought them, like, this is really late. Like, this is, like, past midnight, like, early morning hours. And this guy's talking about he's about to go interview somebody about being a singer at, like, 2 a.m. It just didn't make sense. And he gave the police two phone numbers to contact this woman with to prove his identity and what he was doing. Basically, in both phone numbers, like, he provided them with were basically boofed. Like, they weren't <laughs> – they didn't come back with anything. The same with her address. That's so clever. I know, right? Like, let me give you a fake number that you as a police officer, I know you're going to be able to tell this is a fake number in approximately 36 seconds. What a dingus. Right. So two days later, on May 24th, the nude body of Nathaniel Carter, who was 27 at the time, was found floating downriver a few miles from the bridge where the police had seen the suspicious station wagon. Based on this evidence, including the police officer's hearing of the splash, Police believed that Williams had killed Carter and disposed of his body where the police were nearby. Why the police were nearby? Investigators who stopped Williams on the bridge noticed gloves and a 24-inch nylon cord sitting in his passenger seat. According to the investigators, the cord was similar to marks found on Cater and other victims, but the cord was never taken into evidence for analysis. Adding to a growing list of suspicious circumstances, Williams had handed out flyers in predominantly black neighborhoods calling for young people ages 11 to 21 to audition for his new singing group that he called Gemini. Williams failed three polygraph examinations after the police pulled him in for investigating. Which that just... Go ahead. Oh, I just said cute. Yeah, it just creeps me out that he was, like, purposely making flyers with, like, these young ages and, like, handing them out. So these kids were like, oh, like, I get to audition for something. Like, I have a chance at something. Like, especially, like, in a predominantly black neighborhood, you know, they're like, oh, like, this is my chance to, like, get out. This is my chance to make something of myself. And it's like, no, like, he was just false hope. You're dead. Yes. There is another guy. I cannot remember his name right now. But he did a really similar thing. He went um, and he preyed on young women in, like, a lower-income, like, a mall near a low-income area. And Mm -hmm. he would, he, like, posed as a modeling agent. And he would get female victims that way. Oh, yes. I remember who you're talking about, but I can't can't remember his name. But, like, that's a big one, too. so depraved to prey on people's vulnerabilities. But, I mean, that's what most serial killers do. Right, yeah, and it just, I guess, like, it shouldn't surprise me at this point that, like, yeah, he was doing this, you know, but it's still, like, come on, dude, like, 11 to 21, <laughs> 11. Yeah, that's just, like, such a vulnerable age, especially in low-income Atlanta. Right. Targeting the African-American community. Right. Like, come on. 
And not only that, but, dude, you're African-American. So what are you doing? Like, you're targeting yeah. your own race. Like, these are children. Yeah. Which, I mean, I think on Mindhunter they even said, which, you know, everything you see on TV is true, right? A hundred percent. But I did research it and it is a theory that um, has been proven time and time again. Um, that serial killers typically don't kill outside of their own race unless that's like their MO to just kill all kinds of different races. Or then there's Israel Keys who has no MO except to just kill. Right. To just be psychotic. Yeah. (laughs) So Williams, like I said, failed three polygraph examinations. Though, as most of you should know, and if you don't, I'm going to tell you, um, polygraph results are actually not admissible as evidence in court at all. They do not count those as very credible. They do them still, but they're not used in court at all. <laughs> Did they used to use them in court? I don't know. I That's a good question. I think maybe, but don't quote me on that because I'm not 100% sure. This is back in the 70s, so maybe previously they did, and then they cut it out when they realized it wasn't as credible. Um because, you know, if you've really looked into, like, polygraph tests, like, there's ways that people have figured out how to, like, play that and, like, one, fail it even though they're telling the truth or how to pass it even when they're lying. It's, so it's, it's a science, but it's not a credible science. Yeah, when I asked the question, I was like, I thought I knew the answer. And then I was like, you know what? I actually don't know. Because in my head, I was like, I'm pretty sure they used to use them in court, but now... I don't want anyone to quote me on that because I don't know if that's fact. Right. I feel like because it's a thing, like, they probably did, but I don't know. I wish we were friends with, like, like a judge or an FBI agent and just say, hey, can we hop you on the call for, like, two seconds? <laughs> I wish I had been a freaking detective. <laughs> I know, dude. I tell people all the time. I'm like, in another lifetime, I would be a forensic analyst, like, 100%. 100%. <laughs> let me show up. Let me pick stuff up. Like, let me look. Like, when I was a kid, I used to, like, beg my parents to take me to the spy store because I thought it was, like, a legit spy store to do, like, private investigating stuff, but yeah. it was actually just, like, a home surveillance store. It was yeah, such a letdown. Yeah. <laughs> the most disappointing day of my life. I had a very had... privileged childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I had, like, all eight seasons of um, CSI on DVD when I was a kid, and because of that, I was, like, super, like, I've always been super intrigued by, like, the true crime stuff, so I'm oh, not yeah. even exactly. I'm not even exaggerating when I say this. When I was in seventh grade, I was in, like, this research class. Like, we just had to do research on, like, random topics. So our teacher gave us, like, a freebie. She was, like, write about whatever you want. Like, I don't care. Just have it on my desk by Friday. So I wanted to write about serial killers, bro. In seventh grade, at, like, 12 or 13, I don't know how old old you are in seventh grade. I 100% remember you writing that. Yes, and dude, do you remember me telling you my teacher called my dad to make sure that I was okay? Yeah. She was like, your daughter's 12, and she told me she wants to write about Ted Bundy. And my dad was like, all right. And she was like, does that concern you? And he was like, no, she's not interested in Barbie dolls. I don't know what you want me to say. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> hilarious. Um, let's see here. Okay. So fibers from a carpet in the Williams residence were found to match those that were observed on two of the victims. 
Additional fibers from the Williams home, vehicles, and pet dog were later matched to fibers discovered on other victims. Furthermore, witness Robert Henry claimed to have seen Williams holding hands and walking with Nathaniel Cater on the night Cater is believed to have died, which is the guy that was walking into the theater with him. Mm-hmm. On June 21st, 1981, Williams was arrested. A grand jury indicted him for first-degree murder in the deaths of Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Ray Payne, age 22. The trial date was set for early 1982. The jury selection began on December 28, 1981, and lasted six days. And I love this. I purposely added this. Um, nine men and three men Nine women and three men composed the jury. Among them were eight African-Americans and four Caucasians. I love that because it's like, this is like, a, it's like you killed all these black kids and now like these black jurors are about to get you kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. That's why exactly. I love that. Right. Yeah. Like that's, that's powerful right there. The trial officially began on January 6, 1982, with Judge Clarence Cooper presiding. The most important evidence against Williams was the fiber analysis between the victims. Williams, uh, between the victims, Williams was indicated for, which were Jimmy Ray Payne and or indicated. Why did I say that? Was the fiber analysis between the victims Williams was indicted for, Jimmy Ray Payne and Nathaniel Cater, and the 12 pattern murder cases in which circumstantial evidence um, and numerous links among the crime. So this included witnesses testifying to see Williams with the victims and some witnesses suggesting that he had solicited sexual favors. Hmm. The prosecution, I like, I feel like when I get to the end, my words are just like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. Like, through like stitch from Disney. <laughs> The prosecution's presentation of the case has been criticized to the extent that in some jurisdictions it might have been um, resulted in a mistrial. So two separate FBI agents testified that the chances of the victims not having come into contact with Williams was virtually impossible based only on the rarity of the fibers found on the victims that seemed to match the suspect's car and home. After reviewing the case, Georgia Supreme Court Justice George T. Smith deemed the evidence, or lack thereof, inadmissible. Hmm. So on February 2nd, February 27th, 1982, after 11 hours of deliberation, the jury found Wayne Williams guilty of the two murders. He was sentenced to two consecutive life terms in Georgia's Hancock State Prison in Sparta. And I made a note here that says, convicted for two, suspected for 29. Wow. Yeah, which really just breaks my heart because all those families did not get any closure or justice. No. Even, even though they know. Horrible. You know? Yeah. Um, so they reopened the investigation a few times, even testing the hair on his dog to see if it was similar and or the same hair as hair found on other victims' bodies. On June 26, 2007, the DNA test results showed that the hairs on the body contained the same DNA sequence as his dog, a sequence that occurs in only about one out of 100 dogs. 
um, Dr. Elizabeth Wickham, director of the UC Davis Laboratory that carried out the testing, told the Associated Press. She said that while the results were fairly significant, they don't conclusively point to Williams's dog as the source of the hair because the lab was able to test only for mitochondrial DNA, which, unlike nuclear DNA, cannot be shown unique to one dog. They keep retesting evidence, but they haven't been able to... Uh, they haven't been able to indefinitely link him to any more of the murders. But right after he was arrested, the murders stopped. Like, no more kids were getting killed, no young adults, nobody was being dumped anywhere. Wow. So there was um, a little boy that was 13. His name was Curtis Walker, and neither Williams nor anyone else was ever tried for his murder. But his body was dumped into Atlanta's South River in 1981. And this was actually the same case that led to the stakeout of the FBI agents in Atlanta, where they found Williams dumping a body. So very well possibly could have been him. Wow. Williams is currently serving his sentence at Telfair State Prison. On November 20th, 2019, Williams was denied parole, and he will be eligible for parole in November of 2027. Are you kidding me? Still alive. He better not. I mean, it's hard to know if he'll get it, but, like, that thought is really sickening. What a creep. Yeah, and the whole time, like, which is really interesting, because, you know, like, every, I feel like, murder case has, like, a conspiracy theory around it. And Mm -hmm. I obviously don't believe the one that goes with his, like, at all, but they were saying that, because he's maintained his innocence for so long and has never, like, openly admitted or, like, really, like, proved in any way that he did, even though there was evidence for only those two murders, like, that this was actually the work of the KKK and that he was just their fall guy. And I 100% obviously do not believe that, but that's just one of the conspiracy theories that float around about this case for the people that think he's innocent. What the heck? Yeah, which is crazy. Like, it's obvious. Like, he was driving past the bridge at 20 or at 2 a.m. after they heard a flash. So, I don't know how anyone in the world could ever suspect that that was the case. But I just figured that that was an interesting fact that I did see on Murderpedia. <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting thought. The KKK was a pretty disgusting group of people as well. well right. And they were prominent around that time. Yeah. Homeboys are still a thing. Yeah, but that is the case of Wayne Williams and the Atlanta murders. I just think it's so crazy. Like, the worst thing about the case is just that, you know, he only got convicted for two of them. And I hate that. Like, I feel bad for those other families. Makes me sad. Yeah. I mean, like, they don't have total and complete justice. And, like, as much as it can look concrete that he did kill those kids it's like there's always that question in the back of their minds of is the person who killed my baby still walking the earth freely right like and even like you said if they do think that he 100% did it like he still didn't get convicted for that specific Mm -hmm. name you know what I'm saying like you got convicted for two out of 29 names that's 27 other names that had life to live and build and they were all young like they were all under 25 (laughs) yeah well except for Nathaniel he was 27 but yeah that's terrible but still 27 I mean 
good grief. Yeah, terrible. But, yeah, so if you guys want to look more into that, there's definitely more information you can find on that. You can see Ed Kemper and Wayne Williams on Mindhunter. And Mindhunter is a great show, guys. Oh, my gosh. Go watch Mindhunter. I mean, it's all well You know, strong stomach going in. I don't recommend snacking. Just like I don't (laughs) recommend snacking watching Walking Dead. But... (laughs) Mindhunter is such a good show. It is. I have. I kind of have a crush on the main detective, like the younger guy. I don't know his name. I don't remember. But yeah, the, the guy that plays him in the show, I'm kind of like, I'm feeling you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you're just smart, smart or what, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a very handsome young man. I felt like such a grandma. Why did I say handsome young man? <laughs> he's a very very handsome young gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh um yeah Mindhunter is a fantastic show I mean for anyone who's a little bit younger it is a little bit uh sexy 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 if you know what I mean yeah. um, <laughs> so just be warned but it's a fantastic show it is it really is a great show it's very well written everybody is a great actor in the show and like Hannah said yeah it is very deep <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a show about, like, real stuff. Um, But yeah, that's, like, one thing about the show that's, to me, really stood out against other crime shows. It's, like, sometimes you get people who aren't the greatest actors, but every single person on Mindhunter was, like, this fantastic actor or actress. Like, everyone was amazing. Right, the whole time. Like, because if you watch some crime shows that do the, like, reenactments, like, they're so corny. You're laughing while somebody's being murdered because it's a reenactment. It's just so corny. And it's like, this is terrible. Yeah, it was, but it's so good. It's so good. You feel like you're actually watching, like, the actual people. Right, like, you're involved in the investigations, too. Yeah, it's so good. Wow, Hannah, this was a good episode. I'm glad that we both chose, like, people that are known but not Ted Bundy like talked about you know yeah and it's so crazy that they both ended up being Mindhunter related I know super crazy I wish (laughs) they would have put Ted Bundy on Mindhunter was he on there I don't think he was because that was before they started doing that right he wasn't he wasn't quite well I think he was killing but I think it was hmm, actually I can't remember the timeline well Kemper was, like, early 70s, so it was around the same time, but I don't think Ted had been, um, like, caught yet. Gotcha. So he was still in the middle of killing. Yeah, he was still popping. Crazy. That was a really cold way to talk about what he was doing. (laughs) He was still doing really horrendous, unspeakable things, not (laughs) popping. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious, bro. I mean... No, I feel like you have to be able to keep it light. You know, you have to make some jokes. Like, obviously, people know that it's a very, very serious thing, and it's terrible that it happens at all. But when we're talking about it, we have to be able to make jokes at some point because my girl Hannah was getting nauseous during her case, okay? Give her some time. (laughs) I know. I literally was sitting there, like, taking deep breaths at certain points because I was just like, oh, my gosh, what the heck did this guy do? I was about to tell you to drink some water. <laughs> I was. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, well, that was a great episode, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Um, wherever you guys are listening at, if you guys can hop over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and leave us a comment, let us know what you think. Um, that really helps push our show out more to where we can grow our audience and share these stories with more of you. And also, if you're not following our Instagram at Suspect Podcast, please slide on over there as well and give us a follow. And we will be posting about any upcoming cases, things that we're planning on doing on the podcast in the future. So you definitely don't want to miss that. And Hannah and I are planning on doing a giveaway soon. So you definitely want to be following that Instagram if you are not. Heck yeah. Hannah, do you have anything to leave us with? Watch mine, Hunter. You won't regret it. I agree. They need to release another season. Oh, my gosh, yes. I'm crying that they haven't already. Like, just make something up. <laughs> like, if if season three comes out when work starts back up for me, if work ever starts back up for me, I will take a couple days off work and do nothing but watch Mindhunter. That's how good it is. Binge watch it for, like, three days. Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, on our next episode, our topic slash theme is going to be legal system sales. Um, which can look like many different things. Hannah and I are each going to pick a separate case again and talk about that on our next episode. So that should be super, super interesting. Um, and actually on our next episode, Hannah, I think what I'm going to do, because I took notes today on all, you know, I sent you that link when I was investigating all the different murder charges. I yeah. think at the beginning of our next episode, I'm just going to run through those really quick for the people that maybe don't understand or know what each separate one means because they are detailed and they all mean separate things um heck yeah since we'll be talking about illegal stuff next episode yeah let's do it great well i am so excited thank you guys all for listening be sure to check our next episode um be sure to get yeah be sure to get on our next episode as soon as it comes out be sure to check the previous ones that we've already done and please, 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 you guys, if you have any crime junkie friends, send them this link. Share the love. Give them two new friends who love them and want to embrace them for their sick, twisted things they like to watch and listen to. <laughs> yeah. And our chill with referring to serial killers as popping around. Right, yeah. We're talking about serial killers <laughs> pop, popping and butching around here. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're gonna get canceled. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna get canceled on the internet. There goes the rest of our lives. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. Please don't cancel us. <laughs> yeah, please don't cancel us. We love you guys. Killing people is not funny. Don't kill your roommate. <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.